with us and before us, who was and is and is to come. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable in you and ours in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I'm beginning to believe that I don't believe in the same God as most of America, at least most of American Christianity. And it's troubling me. This week yet another study came out that showed that a good portion of American Christians don't believe we have a responsibility towards refugees. Most Christians in this country don't believe that we have a responsibility towards refugees. That hurts. It hurts especially when I look at my peers from other religions and they think that we do. And I agree with them. And so I look at my peers and clergy and other faith traditions and I say, I'm, I look and I feel and I sound more like that. But the people who claim Christ and I so utterly disagree. So what's going on? I happen to think that part of the problem is metaphors. Pew did another study a while back and they asked Americans whether or not they believed in God. I think they're getting a lot smarter with their questions because they asked, do you believe in God or not, is the first question. 80% of Americans said yes, and 19% said no, and there's only about 10% of Americans who were actual atheists. But when they dug in deeper, they found out there are 56% of Americans who said they believe in the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the language Pew used. While 33% believe in some other higher power or spiritual force. Are you catching the drift? The God of the Bible is being thought of in these questions as omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, all-powerful, benevolent, loving God, a deity. But these folks who say they believe in a higher power or spiritual force are less likely to agree with those sort of adjectival descriptions of God. See, Pew is realizing what many of us have felt for a while. It's not that people are giving up on God, but it's this code word that we're struggling with. When people hear God of the Bible, what most Americans are starting to realize is that we're talking about, crassly, the white dude with a beard on a throne. Or said another way, we have to live up to the fact that American Christianity has largely functioned is a conduit for theological monarchy. We haven't been Trinitarian-filled. We've seen God as a king, authoritative and powerful. And you just heard this passage from Isaiah. There are good things about that metaphor. It's powerful. It hits you in the bones. And you can imagine that the Lord of hosts and all those hosts backing up God, just as our amazing choir just did, there's power in that. You can imagine a good and righteous king standing up for the people of that kingdom. A God that weighs out justice for the oppressed. That's a good king to have. Amen? But all language is metaphor. And all metaphors have their downsides. One of the downsides of the king 
metaphor. This assumes that you are part of one kingdom and everybody else is a part of lesser kingdoms. It sort of sets up this dualism of a king who protects us and our kingdom and everyone else is to be fended off. In this metaphorical system, we think that we have a God who pushes off everyone else by whatever means necessary, whether it's war or violence, the use of power. In that metaphorical system, you could also imagine how people could, again, could, see a God of great judgment, who unilaterally throws down and dictates judgments. If you do not obey my rules, you are in trouble. So many people my age have told me that they love the idea of Jesus but are scared of the God of the Bible that they've heard about in churches they grew up in. And we certainly, in this time, can't get away from the fact that this God is almost always described as male. A male that uses force to get whatever he wants and to get people in line. It's like the ultimate mansplaining. Now, survey after survey show that people in the West are increasingly disinclined to believe in this God, and yet they're increasingly inclined to be spiritual. So what if the disconnect here is not God, but our language, our metaphors that we've been leaning on too heavily? Not that the metaphors are bad, that we've been leaning on too heavily certain ideas of who God is. Only painting pictures of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a good one. But there are other words, too. What happens if we call that trinity creator, redeemer, and sustainer? Feel right? How about if we call it the rock? Redeemer, and friend. Still feeling okay? How about mother, child, and womb? Now pay attention to your body when I said those things. Where did you feel those words hit? Maybe your gut? Or your chest? Maybe some of you felt your throat kind of clench up? Uh Uh-oh, he's talking about God as a mother. We don't do well as change as human beings. We know that systematically. We certainly don't like being told to change the language in our favorite hymns in order to be gender inclusive. We don't like being told to change things that we've known for a long time in order to change. But you know as well as I do what it feels like to see or to feel or to say an experience of God that is different than your very own. If you've ever seen a picture of Jesus painted by a Japanese artist and Jesus is wearing a haori or a kimono, your gut, whether you remember it or not, says, well, that's not what Jesus wore. We think of the Solomon photo of the white Jesus looking up into the corner with a little bit of the heavenly rays coming down on him. If you see God portrayed as an African tribal leader or a Holy Spirit, not as a dove, but as a peacock, 
your subconscious will do a double take if you're a human. Most jarring, personally, was the first time that I saw a picture of Jesus with the hair and the olive skin of a Mediterranean Mesopotamian male. I lost my breath. This isn't right. Or is it right? Because my body had programmed me. Our culture, our Christianity had told me that Jesus should look more like an Iowan. And less. And less like a Syrian. All our religious language is metaphor. There are no words that can grasp the majesty of God. And as you just heard, because you were paying attention, even the word majesty is a word built on a metaphorical system of regalness, of monarchy, of masculine royal courtroom language. And a lot of the Old Testament is written in this way because that's what people would have understood. There are metaphors for their time. But now we live in the era of very few kings and queens, mostly democracies. So we need new words to describe this Holy One of Israel. Lucky for us, we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. While Western Christianity was was skewing towards Rome in the East, the early church fathers and the Orthodox and folks like John Chrysostom, the mystics and the poets and the patristics, were using a different set of words, a different metaphorical system to try and understand their expectations of what God was up to in the world. And yes, some of those words were even more feminine. Richard Rohr writes about this extensively in his book, The Divine Dance. Yes, Pastor Molly did not dance for nothing this morning. (laughs) This amazing book is a spiritual clarion call to awaken our spiritual imaginations to remember the triune God so that we can transform our isolated souls. While the West has focused on independence and transcendence, people in the East spoke of God more often than not as inherently relational. Describing God as a circling round, a flow, a radical relatedness, a perfect communion. It's a lot more interesting to think of a God flowing around that table with us than us just throwing up Hail Mary prayers to a God in the sky, isn't it? All this dancing comes from the Greek word that is developed early on for this, for divine circle dance, which is the word perichoresis. Can you say perichoresis? There's your Greek word for the day. Perichoresis comes, or is related to another word we know, called choreography. And riffing off this, Bono of U2 and his foreword to Richard Rohr's book calls this understanding of God and the quality of this book, quote, a choreography for a life well lived. It is indeed, as Rohr talks about and as I so thoroughly agree, the dis-ease, disease of our time is loneliness and isolation in the West. So Rohr calls us to embrace this image of the triune God as a divine dance, 
Where God is not just a set of three people dancing together, but that God is the dance itself. God is not just a being, but being itself. God is not just handing out love to people that he likes, but that God is love. The first letter, the first epistle of John said it this way, Love is of God, and anyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This system sets up an understanding of God as relational, and it's not just a theological philosophy, it's also a metaphysic, a framework for all of creation. You've probably often heard the phrase, you become what you behold, right? You become what you behold. Now, if we only adore a supreme being that's light years away and separated from us in the clouds, we will tend to want to separate ourselves, becoming isolationists, jockeying for power, making sure we have as much private property as each of us can own, using our individual entities and fiefdoms to win over one another. People who emphasize such an individualist culture might come with cultural phrases and cliches like, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, or you should be a self-made man. On the other hand, if we behold a God that is inherently relational, you begin to see the universe in a relational way. Conveniently, this lines up with everything that every science in the 20th century has come up with. Everyone who knows anything about ecology or biology knows that these are systems. We are part of food chains, collaborative, interdependent systems that cannot exist without one another. Quantum mechanics most loudly proclaims the glory of this God. We've heard the words neutron and proton and electron. We know that these are art uh, particles that are spinning around faster than any of us can imagine. But what we forget is that on their own, they're useless. But when you put them together, neutrons and protons and electrons, they become the force that powers every atom and everything in every corner of the universe. This inherent flow that powers Everything. Do you know what the name is for that power if you manipulate those three elements of the atom? Nuclear power. This is well known by Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, who named his last atomic bomb test site the Trinity. And as one scholar has noted, the shape of the cosmos from quark to Khazar, is Trinity. God is relational. The whole structure of everything can be seen as relational. And as 1 John says, those who don't love don't know God because God is love. It's not just something that God does for fun. So knowing God, and knowing God in this inherently relational way, is not just sort of a cognitive practice, and yeah, I adhere to that idea, that's nice. But it's actually a way of seeing. 
Now, when you're wondering whose faith and life you should try to emulate in this new world, this new way of seeing God, Jesus is always the best Bible school answer. You always want to try and live like Jesus. That's a good place to go. The second best place to go is often Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa understood this relational divine dance, and you could tell it by her fruits. We all knew the amazing work she did in Calcutta. And realizing that this knowing of the Trinitarian God is not just a cognitive belief system, but a seeing and an acting, she wrote in one of her books, quote, We, the missionaries of charity, are called to be contemplatives in the heart of the world. Isn't that an awesome phrase? We are called to be contemplatives in the heart of the world by seeking the face of God in everything, everyone, everywhere, all the time and God's hand in every happening, and especially seeing and adoring the presence of Jesus in the lowly appearance of bread and in the distressing disguise of the poor, by praying the work that is, by doing it with Jesus, for Jesus, and to Jesus. This so beautifully echoes the words of Colossians 1, that Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. Our God is a divine dance. These days, I don't really care if people understand my systematic theology or adhere to the dogmas that I hold so dear, but I want to know, do you see God? I'm less interested in did the miracles of the Bible happen, but do the miracles of the Bible happen now? And are you a person that looks for them, that sees them in this time, that can acknowledge the Holy Spirit in your presence, that finds something holy in every moment, in every corner of the world? Because if God is inherently relational, if God is moving through all of this place, then you can't help but find God everywhere you go. When I'm reminded of this, when I'm reading books like this, I see it everywhere. I see Christ incarnated in the sacrifices and services of our elderly caretakers. I hear God whisper to me in the giggle of one of my children. I see the Holy Spirit moving and the flowing in and out of traffic in downtown. If you take a step back and Look at the system that it is. It's amazing. God is relationship. Well, that's really nice, Eric. Is that really necessary for us? I would really just like to stick with Father, Son, and Spirit. And you can have your new language and do with it as you will. I don't think it's just necessary. I think it's critical. We have declining membership in American congregations. I think most people know that. But at the same time, tarot card shops and palm readers are seeing skyrocketing profits. People are spiritually hungry. In this survey, they found that 72% of millennials believe, of, of religious nuns, so there's folks who have no religious affiliation, 72% of these folks believe in a higher power. Folks are yearning for this. 
Thomas Kuhn wrote in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, that a paradigm shift becomes necessary when the plausibility structures of the previous paradigm become so full of holes and that patchwork fixes are, don't work, that you, you need a complete overhaul. That that paradigm, which once looked utterly threatening, now appears as a lifeline. What could be a better lifeline to the church today than a new understanding of the way God is and the way we are to be in the world? And you know it from your personal experiences, don't you? How many of your friends have heard that God was a judgmental monarch? And because of that, have never stepped foot in a church since then. But you know they still have this glimmer of wonder and awe that they can't shake. And they end up looking for some kind of God as they nurture relationships over mimosas during weekend brunch. That's the new holy time, isn't it? This change is big enough to save the soul of the church in the 21st century, and it's not going to go without a fight. There will be folks who say, I like my Father, Son, and Spirit, and it shall be the only way we talk about God. There will be others who can only imagine God in the divine dance. But the upside after that conflict is so much bigger because we will have claimed a new gospel. With broken metaphors came a broken understanding of what God was doing in the work of Jesus. And I think this good news is best illustrated in an icon. Yes, icons can show us the way. The Russian iconographer Andrei Rublev in the 15th century made an icon that was so powerful, someone was said to have looked at it for a little while and said, if that's the nature of God, I'm a believer. One icon, one painting, and done. Could save you a lot of sermons. You just look at one picture and we're good. Rublev's icon was of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and the Spirit. This beautiful picture. They're at the table. There's a clear flow. It's clear that they're sharing a common cup. But there's something more interesting about this particular icon, even heretical for its time. In the middle of the table, there's this sort of empty spot, kind of a hole that the artist clearly didn't paint. But what art historians have discovered is that there's some adhesive on that table. They believe that at one point in time, in the middle of that triune picture, was stuck a mirror. A mirror so that you, the viewer, not just would believe in that triune God, but would understand your role in it. My friends, the consequence of a Trinitarian understanding of God, the good news of the gospel, is that we are caught up into the flow of God's work in the world. The gospel is not just that Jesus saved you, one and done, transaction, and that's nice. I'm glad that Jesus saved us. But there's really no need to do anything after that. Once you've gotten your ticket to ride to the other side. But the perichoretic trinity reminds us that we have always been. 
and will always be caught up in the relational love of God, a centripetal force calling us in, and a centrifugal force calling us out to spread the good news of love and grace into the cosmos and being pulled back into the love once again. We are inextricably caught up in the flow of the river of God. And so, my friends, we have a choice to make today. We who swim in the river of God's triune love can continue to flail our arms about to try to control the river, to try to build dams and to do what we can with this river that seems to keep taking us along. Or we can start to swim with the current and to notice what life is rising up around us, to see how this flow nurtures life along the riverside, to notice the God that has always been connected a creation that has been adopted by God through the incarnation of Christ. Foliage that surrounds us and nourishes us by the generosity of the Holy Spirit. My friends, the good news of the gospel is that we are caught up in the divine dance. We are in the flow. We are overwhelmed by its waves of mercy and grace upon grace upon grace. Thanks be to the holy and triune God, one Lord, now and forever. Amen.